Father, again tonight we give you thanks that you will reign. The Lord will reign on this earth. We thank you for the promise of your word, and we thank you that all of your promises have been kept. All of them will be kept, because your word is sure. So we're coming tonight again to ask that you will guide us and, and direct us as we think about your word to understand it. And Father, you will move us by your spirit to acts of faith, to commitments, to trust, into that place where your name is glorified in and through us on this earth. And we come to trust you for that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the very top of your paper, it says Isaiah, the Messianic poem. This is week seven. If you've been coming here the whole time, all seven weeks, you're probably beginning to wonder when we're going to get to the Messiah. All right, we're in chapter 42 tonight. We're going to get there. We finally have the first passage, which is completely uh, directed to Messianic matters. And it's a good thing. Because chapter 41, although it contains wonderful promises, to fear not, because I'm with you, don't be dismayed, I am your God, it kind of ended, if you remember last week, it kind of ends on a downer. Because in that chapter, it says the people who don't know God, the the Gentile peoples, are all serving idols, and because of that, they're going to be in trouble. And it says, but I am speaking to you, and I'm sending my word to you so that you can enter into this, to fear not. I'm with you. I'm going to use you and all the rest of it. Remember, that, that took an act of faith. At the end of that chapter, he says this, and so I sent messengers. I sent messengers to my people to tell them this. And what happened? He says, and then I went and I looked. This is God speaking about the way he, he sees it. Now, I went and I looked, and nobody understood. Nobody understood. None of my people have responded. And because they haven't responded, he says, they didn't respond to me. And because there are certain questions in our hearts that have to be answered, if you don't respond to God, you'll make an idol. Later on, we're going to be talking about in detail the whole idea of idolatry. Suffice to say at this point, every person in this room trusts in something. You have entrusted your life to something. There is something you're counting on. And if it's not God, it's an idol. That's We're going to be talking about that later on. But here's the point. When we get to the end of that chapter with that pronouncement on the people of God, that they are in... uh, There, behold, says, verse 29, Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. We're very much into Romans chapter 3. There's none that's righteous. The Jews aren't righteous. The Gentiles aren't righteous. The people that have the Word of God aren't righteous. Those people outside aren't righteous. Everybody is in trouble. None are righteous. No, not one. No one who understands. What is going to happen? Is the plan of God going to be thwarted? And chapter 42 says no, it won't be thwarted. So in the end of chapter um, 41, he has a behold, behold, look at this. Stop and look at it. I've spoken to them, I've given promise to them, I've sent prophets to them, and they all have idols. And then he says this, In chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom is my soul's delight. 
I have put my spirit upon him and will bring forth justice to the nations. We say in the book of Isaiah, because God had called Israel to serve him, Israel is called the servant of God. At other times in the book of Isaiah, because all of Israel didn't follow God, it is the remnant of people who still love God inside the nation who are called His servant. But there are other times, and this is one of them, when the servant is moved down to a single person. The servant is someone who's going to fulfill the purpose of God. Now, we know that this is the Lord because Matthew, in Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 12, I think you get the right one yet. Yeah, Matthew chapter 12, had a brain slip there, um, quotes this, this particular passage. He looked at what Jesus did on the earth. He looked at his, particularly his ministry of healing and his kindness to people. And he remembered this passage and says, and that, this was to fulfill his healing works. His kindness to people was to fulfill, to fulfill this very passage. Let's listen to it. Uh, we're going to go through it. Just step by step, moving right down through it. I want to read the first four verses. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom is all my delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now again, um, it isn't quoted at Jesus' baptism, but it's almost quoted at Jesus' baptism. You remember when the Spirit of God fell on Jesus... The Father says, not quite a quote here, but pretty close to it. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit's falling there. So, my chosen one there, it means my beloved one. That's how it's translated um, in the New Testament. My beloved one, in whom is my soul's delight, in whom I'm well pleased. I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, this, the justice that he's speaking about here is not judgment. This isn't the idea that he's going to bring about judgment. That will come later in the chapter. But at this point, what he's saying is this, that he is going to make this world what it ought to be. He's going to go into a world which is completely messed up and make it right. There isn't justice on this earth tonight. We try at it, but we don't have it. There are people suffering. There are people suffering in the Lord's day. There are people suffering in the Old Old Testament times who suffered unjustly. It wasn't their fault. Somebody better than or stronger than they were took over and they they were cheated. And there's something in our own hearts that that calls out that, that surely God has some bigger, better plan for this earth than He does. And so he says this, that when the servant does his work, he will bring forth justice. And this is an extension of of his ministry, which starts here in the book of Isaiah. He says this to all the nations. It's not only for the Jewish people. It's going to be for all the nations. And he notes that. This is the part, I think, that must have most touched Matthew as he thought about and remind him this. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. Now, again, there's a lot of background here, but the idea here isn't that Jesus won't speak loudly. He is picturing how most conquering generals, conquering armies would come into a place. And when you were beaten and they came into the town, the 
the armies, the representatives of those armies are out in the street and they're telling you what you're going to do. That was generally the way people moved from one religion to another religion. Because you brought out there now, we are in control. The, our religion will prevail. If you don't like it, we've got a system for getting rid of you. And so you come there. And the thought is that when Jesus comes, He doesn't come to shout. He doesn't come to, to scare anybody. He doesn't come to force anybody. He comes to accomplish justice. That's important because He is going to come as conquering. He's going to bring justice to this earth, but not by forcing submission. He's going to do it in a different manner. And then after He says that, He says... He goes on, this is a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Now, to figure out what that means, we have to first of all note this about the, the two figures. They both talk about things which are almost completely worthless. All right? Completely worthless. If you had, if it would have been daylight on your way in here, and you drive down that long, straight stretch of the road, on either side of David's, or, yeah, it's Davidson Road are goldenrod. Anybody ever noticed the goldenrod along there? All right. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Most people don't. Who cares? What are they? They're the weeds that grow along the side of the road. All right. Jesus one time was, was telling us how great a man John the Baptist was. And he was talking to people and he said, when you went out, and they did, they went from Jerusalem way out into the, the boonies. This is, this is out in the wilderness. This is out where nobody goes because there's nothing out there but bugs and, and weeds and all the rest of it. But John the Baptist was out there and the Spirit of God was working and people left town and went way out there to listen to John the Baptist. He says, what did you go out to see? And then to, was it the reeds blowing in the wind? It's, it's kind of a mockery of the whole thing. Reeds, there's, it's weeds. You didn't go out there to watch the weeds go. Right? The weeds are, are kind of worthless. The second thing is a dimly, uh, dimly burning wick. Wicks, again, they have these little oil lamps. They're just little oil. There's a little pot with oil in it and it has opening at one end. And you take a piece of rag. That's all you take. I mean, it's just rag. It's leftover stuff. It's junk. You would, you would twirl it into a little wick and you'd stuff it down in there. This piece of wick, a couple of inches long, was not, you don't, people weren't wick makers in those days. Now today we have very elaborate wicks that go on to the, the very um, professional type of uh, lanterns we have. But this is just junk. Now that's real important because it's a theme which has been going through Isaiah you see, Isaiah's kind of like a symphony, and the themes keep coming back up. And one of the themes here is the vast difference between who God is and who we are. Now, it's, it's worse than that, though, because here's a worthless wick. I mean, it's, it's just as it, in itself, it's of no value. It's only valuable as a wick, and it can't do its job. It's not burning correctly. If you had that problem, you would rip it out in a second and put something out. You'd get another rag and stick it in there. That's how much time it would take because you have to have the light. 
And if this thing won't burn, what good is it keeping around a wick that doesn't burn? I won't get the light I'm after. Out it goes. Put another one in and get it going. Same thing with a weed. He says that the weed, worthless in the first place, or of little value. We won't say worthless, but of little value. There's no economic value to what they're talking about here. This is something that has no purpose. You could burn it. All right. And it's broken. Dog ran over it. Somebody stepped on it. It's bruised. It's, it's flopped over. And then God says that when my servant comes to this earth, he's not going to break, not going to throw away, not cut out the reed which is broken over. He's not going to throw away the smoking flax, the flax that isn't working, or the, the wick that isn't working. He's not going to do that. Again, I think it's important that that it was Matthew who saw this in the Old Testament and thought about it. Matthew, who had sold himself out, he was no longer accepted by Jews. He was at the bottom of the pile as a Jew, and he was just a tool of the Romans. He probably had figured that out, that he's of no count. He doesn't count in this society. He doesn't count in that society. And he heard the message of the Lord, and the Lord came to him and spoke to him and called him to himself. He's not going to throw away the bruised reed. Now, what is he talking about as far as the image goes? That's the worthlessness of the whole thing as opposed to who the servant is. But what is the point? Well, in order to get the point, I want to go on to the second point that's on your notes. It says, first of all, the kindness of the servant. But the second thing, it says his endurance. All right, his endurance. Because it says he will not be disheartened or crushed until he establishes justice in the earth. And the coastlands, again, this is one of those plays that are woven in thoughts. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. That is that the coastlands, the um, coastlands are the nations, all right? They're the nations. They're all the nations are going to wait on his word. All right, remember that thing, that those that wait on the Lord gain the new strength. And that's what he said. That's why in the New Testament, when um, it is translated through the Greek, and we have it in our Bible, it says this, and in him, the, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. To have confidence, to hope because of who he is. Now, back to our, our play on words here. Let me just note that when it says he will not be disheartened or crushed, that's one of these, these plays that they have in, it's a formula of structure that's all over the Word of God where you place four things in a row and the two things on the outside go together and the two things in the middle go together. So he said there is a bruised reed, there is a Smoking, or this wick that isn't burning. And then he says in this, and he won't be disheartened. But you know what the word for disheartened is? He won't burn out. He will not burn out. And then it goes on to the next one, and it says, and he won't be crushed. And the word for crushed is actually a a variation, or it's it's not the same word, but it, it comes very close to the word over here for being bruised. So when he's talking about the ones being bruised, what's he talking about? What happened to the Lord on this earth? As he did his ministry, he was constantly opposed. 
And there were constant attempts to stop his ministry, to break him down, to, to cause him to quit. But he didn't do it. So we're talking about the bruised reed back here. What are we talking about? We are talking about people who face life and are just, it's one thing after another. And we begin to realize that as far as this life goes, you just get beaten up and you get broken down. And that's, that's what Matthew saw as the kindness of the Lord. He's the fulfillment. He went out there and he was healing people that were unimportant. They were unimportant, but they were sick. They were unimportant, but they were demonized. They were unimportant, but they had problems, and he, and he met those problems. second one is this, that he, he wouldn't be disheartened. The smoking flax seems to point to the idea of what happens when you just get tired, tired of living, tired of facing it. Tired of facing your insufficiencies. You're only asked to do a little bit and you can't seem to do that right. Again, um, I think we try to pretend that that doesn't happen to us, but it does. Those sense of insecurity that I've got more on me than I can possibly do, and even if I do it, it is second rate. I don't know if you've ever thought that way, but it, it can happen. This is the human race because this earth is a tough place to live and you're up against a situation where the one in control of the whole thing is out for your destruction, not out for your pleasure or, or, or happiness. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one and the Lord comes into it and he doesn't call out and he doesn't further beat up the people who are out there. And what it says is, he doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoking flax. And then with a, a commitment and a strength, which is different than what we have, he what? as he goes through life, he will not be disheartened. He is not going to let those things happen to him. And he is not going to be crushed by it. Now, the importance of that, of course, going back to Isaiah chapter 40 is this, that what God is going to be calling us to is to identify with him so he can carry us through this. Because the whole point that, that Isaiah is going to make in these first nine chapters of this section is this, that if you try to make it on your own, you're going to wear out. All flesh is grass. And the best that it has, all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. It fades away, but what? Word of our God stands forever. Identify yourself with that person, and you'll be okay. So that's what he's, he's pointing, out to, pointing to there. That's the Lord. That is his kindness. That's his endurance. But what is his mission? I'm going to go on verse 5. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. He is the creator of the whole universe. He is the giver of life. He's the creator of the material side of it. He is the one who gives the immaterial, the, the, the living side of it. What is life? It comes from him, right? He says, I am the Lord. I have called. Now, he's speaking to Jesus. This is the God. This is the Father. This is Jehovah speaking to his servant, all right? He's speaking to Jesus here, um, all right? So he says this, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand 
and watch over you. That's the reason he won't be disheartened, and that's the reason he won't be crushed, because the Lord's going to take care of him. And um, and I will hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Is what you're going to do. You're going to go there and you're going to do two things. There's two two ways he, he views his ministry. You're going to become a covenant to them. Now, this is important because at the time he's writing this and the people to whom he's going to write it, the covenant's been broken. The covenant at Sinai was broken. That's why they're in captivity. It has to be reestablished if there is going to be the full blessing of God to them. He says, I'm going to make you the one who, who enables that covenant to be established. And he says, here to the whole, all the peoples. But in order for that to take place, it's not enough that it be out there. It is then necessary that their eyes be open to it, that they understand what is truth. And so he says further that I will um, make you a light to the nations. And we have another one of those structures to open the eyes of the blind. To open the eyes of the blind. And then tremendous things. And to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Now it's interesting to note that this is the ministry of the Lord. It's also our ministry tonight. It's our ministry. Because as the body of Christ... If we are those that belong to the Lord, that's our ministry tonight. Now, we can, it might seem like a stretch there, but when Paul told us what he heard from Jesus on that road to Macy, he comes very close to quoting this passage. He paraphrases it. That he sent me to open the eyes of the blind and to proclaim liberty, to set it, uh, captives free. Why is he doing that? Because that's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to do. He wants to cause us to understand. He wants to cause people all over this earth to understand. That is the reason we keep on speaking it, because no matter how much they seem to be in opposition, he wants to open eyes, bring them to a place where they see it. And then when he has done that, he wants to do something in their lives which will break the powers of, of, of bondage in those lives and set them free. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the promise. He spoke to people who were in captivity again. And so question comes up, can God do that? Can he really, really do that? I know it's a question that comes up today also, because um, can God really change your life? Can He really set you free? Set you free from sin? Can He break the bondages of sin? Can He break the bondages of fear? Can He break the bondages of addictions? Can He do that? For these people who were in captivity, can he get us out of there? And so he says something to them. And he's going to remind them of the past here. It's a part that you kind of miss when you go through Isaiah because you have to read it in terms of what he knew and what they knew as far as their past. Because in verse 8 he says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. Now, that doesn't... I mean, it says, and the Lord there is Jehovah. I am Jehovah. That is my name. When he says that, he takes you to a, a place in another wilderness. 
He takes you to a place somewhere in Arabia where a man named Moses is out on a hillside. 400 years before that, the people of God ended up in in Egypt. And by this time, they are in hopeless slavery. And it doesn't look like they're ever going to get out of there. And it doesn't look like God cares about it. It looks like the promises that God made way back there to Abraham have been beaten. They have, we are a forgotten people. And Moses is out there having tried to help them and failed. And a bush starts burning in front of him. Doesn't get burned up. It's burning there and he stops to see what's going on. And he comes face to face with the living God. And and God speaks to him and says, it's time for me to act. I have seen what's going on on this earth. And it's time for me to act. And I'm going to send you to get it done. I'm going to do it, but you're going to do it. That's the way God works. I'm going to do it, and you're going to do it. Moses Box. Remember the story. Moses Box. He said, you got the wrong guy. I'm telling you, you have the wrong person. And now along the way, this is where we got to move up to that part. Along the way, he says this, well, when I go there, who am I going to tell them sent me? That's where this comes. And God established a name for himself with Israel. He says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you, from which we get Jehovah. Tell them that. So Isaiah then picking up on that says what? I am Jehovah. That is my name. What name? Is the name that he gave to, to Israel. Is the name that they were to know him by. Alright, so he takes them back to that point. And he says this, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I know that's a fact, but he's still telling a story. Because the story isn't over at that burning bush. Moses gets up. We cut out a lot of the details, but he finally is going to go to the king of, of Egypt. His name is Pharaoh, or his, his, his office is the Pharaoh. And he's going to stand there, and he's going to say, Jehovah says the people of God have to be set free. This is a ridiculous thing to do. He's the most powerful man in the region. Moses is a shepherd by this time from way back. Why would God or why would Pharaoh listen to him? And Pharaoh asks a question there. Because Pharaoh was considered to be divine. And he asked this question, representing the whole human race. Who is Jehovah that I should obey, listen to his voice. Who is he that I should listen to his voice? Now, he's really representing some people. Say he was a, he's representative of the devil there, but he's one of us. That's what the human race has said to God since the fall. Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice? Well, again, to make a long story short, God systematically takes Egypt apart. Great nation, great nation, powerful nation, advanced nation, great people, right? Great great gods. And he's going to systematically destroy it. He doesn't do it quickly. 
does it over a number of months. It would have taken a number of months to accomplish what he does. Why does he do it? Because he is trying to show people in Egypt the fallacy of trusting whatever it was they trusted. The Nile River was worshipped because that's where the water came from and he used it to destroy them. And he goes down one after another in the things that are there. All ten of those plagues are directed towards one of the gods of Egypt so that he can say when he gets to the end of that time, and it's in chapter 12, verse 12. We won't go there, but you can just write it down if you want to look for it there. It's after the plagues are or nine of them are finished. We're getting ready for the Passover event. And Moses goes to speak to people. He says, this is the beginning of your life. This is the beginning of your life. And you're going to do this. And tonight a death angel is going to pass through this, through this um, nation. And he says, after a number of other things in chapter 12, verse 12, says this, And I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I'm going to execute judgment on them because I am the Lord. That's my name and I will not give my glory to another. I won't do it. That that should scare us a little bit (laughs) because God's not interested in anybody else getting glory because it's not right. Why should I get any glory? Why should I? What am I? At my best, I'm a reed, a weed. At my best, I'm a wick. piece of trash that they used to, to keep the, the lamp going. And he is God. And he's the faithful God. Now, why does he tell them that? Why is he taking back there? Now, listen to what he says at the end. Behold, the former things have come to pass. I told... Moses, when he was out in the wilderness. Now, you, this is impossible. This is like me going to the president and telling him how he's going to do things. Why would he listen to me? What's the chances that what God tells Moses at this point is going to come to pass? What's the chances on that night when he says, I'll tell you what's going to happen tonight. We're cutting a lot out, but what's going to happen tonight? Tonight, you need to put blood outside of your Outside of your house, because an angel's coming through, and if it is not there, you are going to lose your firstborn. That's going to happen all over Egypt. And when it's done, when it's finished, you're going to know that God has moved, because your neighbors are going to tell you, get out! Get out! And you're going to say to them, can we have your stuff? And they're going to say, yeah, just get out! It was pretty, I mean, you have to get the idea. They didn't invite them out. They wanted them anyway. And you're going to plunder Egypt. And I'm going to take you out of this this whole place. Who could predict it? Who could tell that that was going to happen? Who would have known that in a series of months you would move from abject slavery to complete freedom to that night when they look or that morning? was the dawn comes on a morning and they look back across the sea and those that have been in hopeless bondage watch that sea collapse on top of Egyptians... And they are free. There is no one to enslave them. There's nobody out here. The Egyptians are gone and the Egyptians have defeated everybody else. They have all the weapons and all the weapons are right at the bottom of that sea. Who would have predicted it? Now why does Moses go to all the trouble? He says, God brought to pass the former things. Everything he said he was going to do. 
the 400 years and then he would take them out, he's going to do it. The bones of Joseph are out of there. The people are out. Now, as he said, behold, the former things have come to pass. Now, he's going to repeat this down the way, but don't get caught up with the former things. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something new. Now, what's the new thing he's going to do? Well, behold my servant. Behold my servant. Again, I love the book for this reason. This is 800 years before Jesus appears. He's going to tell you exactly what he's going to do. He's going to come. And he's going to start the process of establishing justice on this earth. That's what he's going to do. Now, a question comes for Israel, what are they to do about it? This is what we talked about last week. What do you do about that? Well, all this time, God has been speaking for himself. All this is I will, I, 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 and he's speaking and he's telling you what God will do. When he finishes saying this, that before they come to pass, his victory comes to pass, I'll proclaim it to you, then Isaiah jumps in there. Isaiah interrupts the, the passage here a little bit, and he's what he says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the ends of the earth. You go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them. And he's talking about the vastness of the earth. You let the whole earth do this. Let them sing praises to God. That's the proper response. That is an expression of faith from his perspective. You want to do something about it. You can't just listen to it. You can't just know that it's going to happen. Here's what you need to do. You need to rejoice in it and start to, again, wait for the Lord. And that's what he's going to be speaking about there. Let them do that. Let all the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. And the settlements, and he goes all the way down through there. Let them, verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Right? That's what he says the right response is. And that's what the right response needs to be tonight. So that people who, again, the, the, the salvation is there, but what should the response be? Well, that's what it should be because the Lord tonight is still in the same disposition that he was when he came to this earth. See, disposition, it's, it's, his, it's his program right at the moment. His program right at the moment is to not break the bruised reed. To not quench the smoking flax. It is a time when he is not shouting in the streets. He is not forcing anybody to do anything. He is not making nations into Christian nations and making everybody follow. He is opening up his arms, if you would, to the human race and saying, here is salvation. That is our job tonight, is to open up our arms to the human race and say, there is a salvation to be had. There is a message to receive. There is a victory that you can have in your life. There is a, 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 a freedom that you can have in Jesus Christ. That's our job to proclaim it and to proclaim it with all kindness and goodness, truthfulness, but goodness. But that is not permanent. The disposition is not permanent. Why does Isaiah call them to do that? Verse 13, the things begin to change a little bit. This is a real common pattern for the book of Isaiah. 
It says, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. Now, that is a complete change from where he started here. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise the war cry. Remember at the very beginning he said this, he won't raise his voice. Now he says, I'm going to raise my voice. But when he raises his voice, it is not to to impose or force his will on the people. It is to clean the whole place up. It's a kind of a different thought. It isn't that he's going to try to make all people submit to him. They will all, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess who he is. But they're going to be destroyed and taken out of the way. Psalm 37, it tells us that you need to serve the Lord because there's going to come a day when you're going to look around and you're going to say, where are they? Where are all those people that didn't serve the Lord? Where, where are they? And you're going to find out you will inherit the land. But they won't be there. They aren't going to be there because God's plan is, is that there will be a moment when the disposition changes, we have no idea when that moment is. Tonight, it's still a day of grace. It's still a day of peace. I can still proclaim a gospel and a God who's ready to receive you if you're ready to come. But that's not permanent. And when he gets becomes the warrior here, he won't be coming with salvation. He will be coming to bring justice to this earth. Right, and here's a... That's, that, Description there. Again, this goes very similar to what we saw last year when we were thinking about the book of Hebrews when the Lord came the first time and says, you'll know your king when he comes to you because he's going to come on a donkey, meek and lowly and seated on a donkey. The book of Revelation tells us that when he comes the next time, he will be on his war horse. That's the way it's presented. The first time it's in peace. The first time it is an offer of salvation. It is a time which God in His grace extends salvation to people. When He comes again, He will come on the war horse. That's what He says there. That's what Isaiah says. And then God takes over again. Okay, Isaiah, I'll pick it up from here. I'll take it. I've kept silent for a long time. This is God speaking. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. Women at those days didn't have anything to uh, alleviate the pain. You just had to go through it to have a baby. And he's thinking about those, those pains coming on a person rather rapidly. All of a the sudden, they're there. Because you see, the picture he's got here is of God looking on this earth. And even though we have a gospel which, which tells us there's good news to people, we can, God is extending in one sense his heart towards people. On the other side of the coin is this. God hates sin. People wonder, does God care about the injustice of the earth? Yes, He does. He does care about that injustice. He cares that people are suffering. He's offering a gospel, but He doesn't sit there passively with it. And the picture He's got here that He presents to us is this, that there comes a moment, that's what He says, And I have kept silent for a long time. I have put up with this for a long time. I've been still. I've restrained myself. Now it's going to come just like like those labor pains hitting a woman. And she she gasps and she shrieks and she does whatever noises you make when you're having that experience. But he says that's the kind of noise it will be. It will suddenly burst out. It will be uncontrollable because in a sense because I am now ready to take steps and that's what he says will happen 
I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all the vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and I will dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind. We want to get that in just a moment. But he's coming to this victory. I'm going to destroy. There is a moment. There's a day of grace, but there is a moment. And that moment could be tonight. That could be 100 years from now. Could be thousands. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not here to argue about. I don't know because I can't see into heaven. I can't see the preparations that are being made. I don't know when the Lord will mount his horse and suddenly the heavens split. We're told that he'll come back in the same way that he left right up into the clouds. And when he comes back down, you won't be looking for him that that direction. And when he comes, he says, everything's going to be divided. What's going to happen? There's two things. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. Now, this picture isn't that they're still blind. The picture is this. Those who were blind, I'm going to take them in a way that they do not know and in paths that they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and the rugged places into plains. These things I will do and I will not leave them undone. For the people that trust him, he says, I'm going to give sight to them. It would be bad enough to be blind in this room and have to maneuver. The floor is flat. The chairs are soft. All right, he says that there's, here's the problem for people. This is his picture of the human race. They are out there. They can't see. They don't know where they're going. And they're in a place that is rocky. It is no path. They can't find. There's no path to find. It's just, it's just being dumped in the wilderness. You don't know where you're at, and you don't know what's in front of you. And everything is strong. But he says, well, if they'll trust me, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to take those blind people by the hand. They're going to see. So they'll see what's going on. And then I'm going to take in that wilderness, that rocky place, I'm going to shovel it into one flat, flat thoroughfare for them to walk down. It's a picture of God making a gracious way for his people. Right. And then he says this, and I won't leave that undone. Verse 17, or we'll finish tonight. And they will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you're my God. They'll be utterly turned back. So it's, this is the big separation. You need to, I've said it so many times, I, I kind of think maybe people get tired of, of listening to it. But there's a day coming, which is called the day of the Lord. That day of the Lord is a day to which people who know God look forward. Not because we want to see the destruction of the wicked, but because we want to see righteousness on this earth. When you come to know Jesus Christ, God plants into your heart a love for righteousness, a love for that which is good, a love for truth, a love for purity, a love for, for kindness. And you go out into a world which is filled with unkindness and lies and brutality and it hurts. But there's a coming a day when all that will be moved. All right. Day of the Lord is a day of separation. That's what it's it's pictured all the way through the word of God. Day of separation. A day when the righteous are moved into a place where they will be free to love and serve God and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. But for those who don't know God, 
at that moment, everything can be taken away. That's why in the book of Hebrews it said, you need to... You need to grab hold of that which won't be shaken because there's going to come a day when God's going to take this earth. That's another way to, to picture it. He's going to take the earth and he's going to shake it. And you better be hanging on to something right at the right. If you're hanging on to this earth, when it starts getting shaken, you're going to be shaken. Now, why, is God, why does he go through all that? Why is this passage there? God has gone to great extent through his servant, my servant, all right, to make a way of salvation. There's none that's righteous, no, not one. That's where we start off, and that's still the same thing tonight. There's none that's righteous, no, not one. But God has made a way of deliverance in Jesus Christ. If you want to see what that deliverance, at least in picture, can be like, go back to the, the people in Egypt and see how God came in and systematically destroyed their enemies and set them free. That's what He wants to do in our hearts and lives, that same kind of victorious thing. He can do it. And the salvation is there. But you have to come to Him. You have to come and receive that from Him. You have to come and grip that. If you don't, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go find something else to trust because you're not big enough to face life on your own. Nobody is. It's going to be you and money, or you and sex, or you and drugs, or you and, or you and entertainment, or you and whatever. Social acceptance, but you'll make a God out there. So Isaiah wants them to all know, give it up. All those gods are going to be destroyed. In the end, they're all going to be destroyed. And at that point, only those who are trusting God are going to be delivered. You can do that tonight. A great privilege tonight. It's still a day of salvation. It's still a day of grace that is still available to you. The horse hasn't arrived. He hasn't been mounted yet. The Lord is still extending His hand to this earth. When the justice takes place, it'll be too late. So where are you tonight? What are you trusting? That's the big question. What are you trusting? Are you trusting the Lord Himself who's been given to you as salvation, or you're trusting something else. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're coming and asking you to take your word, Father, in these important days. Oh, we thank you for the grace, your grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your servant. We thank you that when there was no hope on this earth, when we were all condemned, he came in grace and mercy to present a message of salvation and deliverance. We thank you that you're able to save, save to the uttermost. Now we're coming and asking you to bring each person in this room into vital trust, vital faith, strong reliance on you and your infallible word. We come trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.